Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Welcome to Suplexes and Cervezas with Chavo Guerrero Jr. I'm your host, Chavo Guerrero Jr. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. I'm super stoked today to have a good friend of mine on, Josh Barnett. He's the youngest UFC champion of all time at 24 years old. You'll see how intelligent Josh is. I really enjoyed talking to him. He's got a lot more going on than just smashing faces. And he even has his own bourbon out. And of course, we start off the show by sampling it. So let's get right into it. Now I'm looking at this awesome oh, this, this bourbon, yeah, bourbon this that's in front of me here. Smoked bourbon, and so uh, we're going to start off with the standard Warbringer. The... This is going to be batch number six. Uh, I personally was involved in the creating of the blend of this, uh, and this bottle, in fact, was hand labeled and, and filled by me. So I stamped it. How did now? It, how did you? Can you obviously, you're a, a bourbon fan right uh yeah whiskeys in general i really right. got into whiskey uh living in japan the incredible whiskeys out there right yes yes very very beautiful stuff uh very related to scotch in the way it is made mm -hmm. and crafted but with a subtle element to it that it speaks um into the japanese culture itself yeah no you know and, I, and i've seen that well i, I see it a lot of times in, in japan because they love anything american mm -hmm. they will almost knock off American stuff and then do it better <laughs> a lot of times. Well, yeah, that was part of what uh, made them such a force in the 80s by taking electronics and things like that yeah. in the early 70s. Uh, in fact, it might have actually started in the 60s, if I'm if I'm correct, with uh, their use of the transistor and things and making things smaller and more compact and better. Right. But uh, whiskey with them started in the 19th century, I believe, uh, where uh, the guy that founded... It was the head distiller of Suntory. Suntory, yeah. He was in Scotland, and he learned how to make scotch. And then he came mm. back and then started up the first whiskey distillery. And oh, so he learned, the, he learned from the, the masters. Right, and so when he left Suntory and, went, uh, and he started Nico, he wanted it to be on a similar latitude mm -hmm. as Scotland, so it would have a similar more similar climate so he could make it oh, yeah. more like scotch. Oh, wow. Yeah. Smart. My dad started going to Japan, you know, when I was definitely young in my career, probably like 
76. He started, he started bringing back all these electronics. So mm-hmm. we had the first Walkmans before anybody had it. I'd be walking down with a Sony Walkman and it was just, you know, a little square thing with a headphone jack, but everybody like, what, what is that? Like what? I mean, this was a cassette player. You know, I mean, so, at times some of this stuff was just wild, just way ahead of its time. Oh, totally. So, the first time that I saw a GPS, I, I we had no idea what it was. We were in Japan, and the referee Tayama, mm-hmm. he had it. It was in his car. It was already not not like a unit. It was built in already. And we're like, what the heck is that? About two years later, then they started coming out everywhere in the, in the states. Yeah, but they were already incorporated in the cars. The there. first time I ever saw uh, what you would call a smartphone was in Japan. Yeah. Oh wow. Uh, and yeah. Phones with hard disk drives and things like that. Phones that would uh, cell phones. Yeah. That would. Uh, have television that you mm. can watch on it all these different things uh, was all in japan i remember there was a, a point there up until really the iphone came out right. that all the cell phones in japan were were way ahead of the curve versus anything you can get in the states really that's that well that, and I think now it, they all use iphones yeah oh yeah yeah well, it's kind of <laughs> weird like it's like when we used to go there when i first started going to japan in 96 their their electronics were kind of stuff that you hadn't seen. Mm-hmm. Now as you go there, you kind of you see you have it all here. It's weird. I don't know yeah, what happened. It's uh, it, it seems that the market appeal to have things also in the states at the same time uh, just yeah. overrode the idea of of waiting for things to be released in Japan and then slowly mm. move them over to to the U.S. It's it's really it's pretty much now that most things if you want to buy in Japan. Most things are already available in the states and mm-hmm. for cheaper. <laughs> yeah. You know, every time I tell someone about, oh yeah, I'm over there, and they'll ask me, bring me back some whiskey. I go, hold on, dude. Actually, we can probably get Yamazaki 12 easier in the states and for less money than I'd pay for it over here. And they're like, how is that possible? I go, I know it don't make sense. It's with it the the internet and Amazon, everything kind of changed everything. All right, so what what are we drinking? So this is Warmaster, or sorry, this is Warbringer Mesquite Smoked 98 Proof uh, Blended Bourbon. Mm. It is 75% uh, roasted corn, or 75% smoked corn, and then there's of that corn, or 75% corn, and of that 75% corn, 75% of it is is mesquite smoked, and then the other 25%, or, or yeah, the other 25% would be roasted corn. And then of the corn mash bill, or of the mash bill, there's 75% corn, and then the other 25% is uh, malted rye. And then we finish it in sherry barrels. Oh, wow. Wow. So this actually, with actual mesquite, you're actually mm-hmm. smoking it with mesquite. Mm-hmm. Wow. And you can smell the big smoke mm. on the nose. Oh, yeah. This must is incredible. Now, I'm, I'm a... A little bit, little bit of a connoisseur in certain things. You know, as I get older, my my taste is changing. I'm starting to like the finer things in life. Sure, finer wines. You know, finer cigars. It. it I think your taste. I always like the fine women. <laughs> though, I'm sure. Yeah, I love the fine women, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I married one, so yeah. I'm, I'm. She's she's the best. I haven't found any more any woman like her. So, and she's nuts. She's insane. She's the only one that can actually put up with a fighter. So, <laughs> Hold on. let me taste this. Oh, that's some high end shit right there. This is 98 proof. That's 98. Mm-hmm. Wow. 98 proof. When usually you're looking at a 80 proof. Yeah. Usually like, you know, like most, a Knob uh, Creek or most a, bourbon stuff is, is either between 80 or 90. Wow. This There's is a few good. Of them out there that are a hundred and a hundred is usually something you come across when it's bottled in bond. Mm-hmm. Things are changed. Like, like I drink like a, like a extra Anejo tequila. Mm-hmm. That's kind of very bourbon-esque. I prefer the Añejos on the extra Añejos. Yeah. I do too. Like if I'm, if I'm doing tequila, uh, a silver, I'm going to shoot. 
Uh, yeah. You know, a silver wood, I don't even care what silver It's just silver a party is. drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah throw, totally. throw some soda in it and a lime and I'm good. Totally. totally. A reposado, it's very smoky to me, but I'm going to I'm gonna put it in a margarita. Something mm-hmm. like that. I like it in a margarita. But if I'm going to sip something, it's the extra anejo and it's, that I, I don't know. Like I said, yeah, well, it's no. because the, the interaction with the uh, the oak barrels. Because uh, anejo uh, mm. tequilas usually are used, they'll use ex-bourbon barrels and they'll use oak barrels. So you know, You're right. Yeah, totally. That's excellent. That is that's easy drinking. Now it's called War Warbringer. War, Warbringer. Warbringer from Sespe Creek Distillery, and we got it up at uh, WarbringerBourbon.com. Nice. Now, where'd you get the name at? Uh, well, the company was already around. Uh, Sespe Creek was already producing the Warbringer Mesquite Smoked Bourbon, and also some 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 vodkas mm. up north in Oxnard. And one of the the owners reached out to me about doing some sort of uh, whiskey project together. Uh, and I think a little bit was uh, hinged on uh, the popularity of proper 12, proper number 12, and of Conor McGregor getting involved in in, uh, in spirits. But what he got with me was someone that said, oh, actually, I'm already talking to some distilleries about trying to get a uh, whiskey on the market. Mm, and sure, I take yeah. this really seriously. So yeah, okay, I'm interested, but I got to come up and actually taste what you guys are making. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can't just put your name on something like that. Uh, you'd be crap. surprised. <laughs> well, no, everybody does that. Everybody's into, you know, making making a buck. You well, know? usually the, the and most celebrities it. go with something like uh, vodka, which you just can't fuck it up. Well, I mean, vodka's, it's too easy. Vodka's, anybody can't really crazily taste the difference on a vodka. Now, if I like a straight vodka martini and I, I like mine shaken it's not too much difference if i have a sky no, vodka and i have the, a kettle one right the the basic premise of vodka according to the u.s government and the what is it the whatever batf you know alcohol yeah, sure sure it's uh odorless tasteless and it has to be distilled at 180 proof well then if it's odorless and tasteless if it's exactly. tasteless exactly. the air is here is tasteless you know what i mean so so i mean you're not really getting a whole lot of variance right right you know and don't get me wrong but as i get older i'm, I just, I'm just staying getting away from vodkas I'm, I'm liking gins more i'm like a like different gym i like an american gym as opposed to like a london gin but well and gins are basically uh grain alcohol of sorts so right. like a vodka but they're infused with all these aromatics yeah you got the saffron yeah the you got all the different yeah i agree totally now how did you how does it come about so i went up there uh mm-hmm. i sampled all their stuff and talked to their head to the head distiller david we got on so well and we both had a lot of respect for each other's position in terms of uh, our love of the product mm-hmm. but we were also on the same page about what i was looking to do and what he even wanted to do for a next stage and so that from that became the Warmaster edition where it's single barrel cast strength and I do all the barrel picks. So are these both single barrel? No, okay. only the Warmaster edition barrel. is. The the Warbringer, the standard is is not a single barrel product. It's a double barrel. Well, it's whatever. I mean, it's just like we, however many barrels we use to make the blend. Sure. Are you more of a, a single barrel person because i know this people like certain scotches you know would be a like a uh, well, well, single malt, Maga- well, single yeah, malt so a single malt scotch just means mm-hmm. that it is made from a single distillation run but mm-hmm. it's still blended it's still blended so, but blended it's also a single distillation run and single distillery mm-hmm. so if you have a glenfiddich you're not going to have any uh glenkeith 
or mm, Glenallachie right. or anything else blended into that, you're only going to have Glenfiddich whiskeys in that in that uh, formulation. And so that single malt label has to do with single distillery, single distillation run. Gotcha. So uh, with this, with single barrel in terms mm-hmm. of this bourbon, what's in the bottle is from one barrel and one barrel only, and it is cask strength. So it's whatever it comes out of the, the barrel at, that's what it's bottled at. And then that's it. So every barrel is different. Every so barrel. So every every bottle actually have a like what barrel it came from oh, the yeah. label. Yeah, and this yeah, is yeah. it. And so this one. This is the last one. This is from uh, the first barrel that we did. Oh, this is the num- barrel, number, barrel yeah. seven. Okay. And uh, it came out at 109 proof. And this one won oh, a wow. gold medal at the San Francisco International Spirits Competition. So this, this is year. almost a, basically like a wine. So you know, a Camus, you know, 1996. Oh, yeah, yes. you know, yeah, but it, this it, one, you put it on your shelf and 20 years, this thing is worth some serious uh, money. You know, if who knows? Yeah. Uh, at, the, at the moment, you can't buy a bottle of this anywhere that I know of anymore because there we have sold every yeah, single yeah. Ever barrel that we had available out. And we have three awesome. barrels already that are pre-sold. Oh wow! So we're—I don't know what the maturation is going to be on on putting out the next batch. I'm hoping that by winter mm-hmm. things will be good, good enough to to bottle up. But uh, you know, you can't rush time. And the thing is, you, you, the barrels—they have to do what they're going to do. But then, not every barrel is good enough to be a Warmaster edition, and that's where oh, the barrel so you, pick comes wow. in. So I go and I yeah. pick uh, among what's available. And if it if I feel like nah, maybe this one we'll 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 put mm-hmm. a earmark on it we'll we'll give it some more time or this one's this one's ready to go let's 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 pull it out you know what I'm that's God so much like me like to and I tell my kids this all the time you put your name on whatever you do you put your name on so you know if you're washing a car something as simple as that and when it's done that's your you're putting your name on that mm-hmm. your homework and school also you're putting yes. your name on it this so this is that times ten you're putting they're looking at this alcohol and going, oh my God, this is Josh Barnett. It's either gr- incredible, this guy's amazing, or this thing, or it's, it sucks, this is it's horrible. So when my George Clooney first came out with um, Casa Amigos, mm-hmm. and they're like, oh my God, George Clooney has this new, this new tequila. And I'm like, what the fuck does George Clooney know about tequila? Mm-hmm. What, you know, what the hell? Then I tried it, and I'm like, all right, it's, pr- it's pretty good. It's not too bad. But I was kind of like, all right, I get what it is. You know, he made it for huge and sold it for a billion dollars okay i get it great awesome you know i'll take a billion dollars but at the same time you you your name you can't buy your name dude <laughs> exactly and you, you gotta wonder okay well what does george Clooney know about tequila does exactly he just know, oh, you know this is good and that's it and he's just like okay well then let's sell it and then he just leaves it all in the hands of everybody else right you don't know which, which could be okay you know yeah. i'm not gonna sure. fault the guy for that but with me because whiskey is a hobby of mine it's something i really care about it's one of the vices that that matter if i'm gonna have my name on it i i didn't i don't necessarily have to be uh, as involved per se because i actually have been helping with distilling runs stripping oh, runs, so doing everything uh, nice. uh, milling grains mm-hmm. uh barreling like i i when i have time i go up and i work at the distillery and i do from start to finish you know, I'm really? a part of the process, checking the pH levels, checking the bricks, which is the sugar content yeah. and adding the adding the pitch and working with the mash and transferring, doing everything from sweeping the floors to, to watching the stills and making right. sure that they're uh, they're That's within awesome. our range, what we want. But uh, it just anything that, that I put my name to, it's it's got to be something that I'm proud of, something that I, I agree that is it is up to my standards for representation. So if you buy it, I back it and I right. back it for a reason. 
I've just always tried to maintain this so that I never get into that place where essentially what it comes down to is where my word is worthless. Yeah. Like, and so yeah. I, I, when you buy this bottle, I hope that if you buy it because of me, you're buying it because you trust my word. You don't want to become that product whore. No, there's certain products that I rep, you know, on, you know, social media, whatever, mm-hmm. but I have to try every single one of them. Mm-hmm. And I have to, these people, your followers are actually taking your word for it. So I'm not just telling them, Hey, you know, this is my promo code, uh, you know, buy this supplement. No, I actually have to use this stuff, actually use it and stand behind it. Like this stuff is, this is great. Getting out of the bourbon stuff and we'll come back to that because this is. Yeah, we <laughs> we'll, definitely we'll have be, a second bottle I, to get in. That's why I'm going to definitely come back to that. You were the youngest UFC champion of all time. Mm-hmm. How the heck did you get started in, in MMA? I just watched it on TV, man. Did I, you? I saw a tape of UFC 2 as a sophomore in high school and uh-huh. I just in my heart and in my head, I said, I don't know what it's going to take to, to get to, to, to do this, but I'm going to do this. Were you a, a wrestler already? Were no, you I was a wrestler and mm-hmm. I, had, I had done a little judo and just sure. street fought as a little kid. And I just was always drawn to fighting and competitive sports like that. I mean, and, and also when I saw the first UFC, or I should say the first UFC that I ever, I ever saw, which sure. was UFC 2, I thought this is the highest most intense level of competition that you can have in any kind of sport. And I was playing football and wrestling. And to me, I thought, I mean, these things were, were, were great sports in their own right. And wrestling to me being you know, numero uno and then seeing fighting, I thought, well, this just takes everything up to it's like it's Zenith. This is, this is the highest level at which you can compete against another human being. Well, that's how what UFC back then was karate versus boxing, mm-hmm. wrestling versus jujitsu. It was like all the different disciplines against each other and not too many were hybrids, you know? So when I saw UFC one, I was so bummed. I was, I was such a wrestler, you know, and I was so pissed off when Ken got beat uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, Ken Shamrock got beat by and tapped out by, uh, by hoist, by hoist, yeah. by hoist uh, as a skinny jujitsu guy. And I was kind of like, what, like, what, what, what is ju- this jujitsu thing? You know, because I was such a wrestler and growing up as a wrestler, but like my, my grandfather, when he passed away, we were kind of MMA in a sense, the Guerreros before it was cool mm-hmm. because he was such a fan of all disciplines. So he started, wrestling he he was in mexico at the time and he went to go try to he went to go try to be a boxer mm-hmm. boxing class ended so wrestling class was on so he goes uh okay i'll i'll try this and try that <laughs> and he's all really like that so and when he passed away in his library there was books on on striking on judo on jujitsu all these different things and i was kind of like wow he really saw the um it wasn't just he didn't just get glad you know mesmerized by one discipline by wrestling he saw the value in all these different disciplines and these are art forms you know so i always say that we were mma before it was cool well i mean given uh the proper era and context uh the guerreros and the like the urquitas family all all of you guys would have been successful in that in that venue because there were so many people that we saw come UFC one where they just had no idea what it was like to fight in a, in a more well-rounded capability to right. use ground skills to inst- institute submissions and strikes and all these things all together. It's just like the original new Japan dojo under Carl Gotch. They would take out the ads in the newspaper and say pro wrestling is the king of sports. It's the strongest martial art. So martial artists would come to the dojo sometimes and go, 
bullshit. I'm going to, I'm going to take you guys out. You're not right. that tough. And gotcha pick someone like, Oh, keto or black cat or whoever, like go ahead. And they would crush every single and person just, that came yeah, in the Just doors. submit everybody. Right. And that's the thing yeah. is that that's where pro wrestling's roots are, where right. guys out there working matches, having to be absolute legitimate fighters in some form or another to even earn the place to get into that ring. That's how wrestling was back in the day. I've said that many times. You had to prove that you're a tough guy for them to even train you, for them to even, you, you had to show you're a tough guy. They didn't train anybody. You had to prove that you wanted, you, you wanted to get trained. And yeah, that's just the way it was. On. You and, had to be tough. And it went from every level. So you might have, okay, you got a Bob Roop, who's a, a Olympic Bob. level amateur wrestler, but then you got, what, the, the Dick Murdochs, who... Okay, they don't have a bunch of credentials, but they can fight. They can fight, yeah, yeah. And so, the, well, go ahead. Dirt, Dirty Dick Slater was that. Dirty was Dick like Slater, that. yeah. So Dirty Dick, Dick Slater was a, he was a bouncer in the bars that the wrestlers should go to. And they should see this bouncer beating people up. And he wasn't a big, huge guy. But they're like, you got to come out for wrestling. And he's like, ah, what do, I, what do I want to come out for that shit for? And they're come on. <laughs> and at the time, they would bring, bring everybody into the Tampa arena. And there's that legendary... Um, story where they brought Hulk Hogan in there, you know, Terry Bollea, mm-hmm. and his first day broke his leg. Yes, and, that's right. And uh, see his, if he come his back. trainer, uh, the Japanese cat. Uh, yeah, um, uh, yeah, famous, famous guy. Yeah, and, and, and the guy, you know, Terry, Terry gets in there and he's like, yeah. yeah, this is wrestling, this is wrestling. So the guy starts putting catch holds on him, snaps his ankle, puts a toe hold on him and is just like, all right. And yeah. then Terry came back. And he came back and so that's when they're like, oh, okay, this guy's not just a big Hero muscle Matsuda, guy. Matsuda. 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 That's Matsuda, exactly what's Hero Matsuda. Gotch. Exactly. So they would lock the door and have they'd have their stories of people trying to crawl out and run out and they'd bring them back and say, nah, we're not done with you yet. So when they got Dick Slater in there, Dick Slater started running through their guys and he was just like, all right, well, let's. We'll see what you got and start you know, he was he was just a tough guy he was a tough street fighter and they're like all right we, we got to train this guy you know <laughs> well and that's even similar to what the uh the road warriors right they're yeah. part of this whole group of guys who all ended up becoming big time wrestlers all, yeah tough all guys. working some bad bar with a lot of fights and stuff and then just kicking the ever-living shit out of right. people left and right and then eddie shark he's like you guys want to make some money, like some real money? So they're exactly. like, okay, yeah. yeah. So all he did was like, what was it? Animal was saying that they put him in the ring, didn't teach him any pro wrestling, quote unquote. They just made him go shoot on Beat each the other. the hell out for, of each other. And they're just like, well, <laughs> what are we doing here? And then eventually they get out in the ring and go do their thing. And he's like, see, you're getting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they, they wouldn't smart anybody up. And they wouldn't tell him, you know, hey, wrestling's, uh, you know, it's a work or this is, you know, entertainment. They would actually just go out there and go. They, sometimes they would give, both people to finish and say okay mm-hmm. you're gonna win you're gonna win and they'd go out there and be trying to shoot pin each other you know so story of dick slater when i was i was a kid so i i i just started with wcw mm-hmm. i had to move to atlanta to just go to, it wasn't the power plant but that's where they want everybody living it was in 1996 and i went there with my girlfriend at the time who is now my wife and we had nothing literally we had sold everything she sold her apartment stuff i sold my my stuff and i literally moved in with two boxes like in two seconds we moved in so i had to buy furniture and mm-hmm. forks and knives and coffee pot and i mean a shower curtain everything so we went to go buy i'm making a little money now wcw you know i was making about eighty thousand dollars not before taxes and before all road expenses so i was probably making like thirty thousand <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> so um I had to buy furniture. So we went to this place called Haverty's Furniture over there. And I still remember the salesman's name. His name was Bill Llewellyn. And I don't know why I remember. I just do. And he's like, oh, are you a wrestler? And I said, yeah. And he goes, do you know a guy named Dick Slater? 
And I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course. You know, he knows my dad real well. And he goes, I grew up with Dick Slater. I'm like, oh, okay. This is a guy I just met out of the mm-hmm. blue. And he goes, that guy is the toughest, craziest SOB that we've that's ever ever been. I said, well, you know, some wrestling. There's some pretty t- crazy tough guys out there. And he goes, no, you don't understand. He goes, one time, he goes, we're the same age, the same grade. And we were 13 years old, walking down the street. And some kid, that 16-year-old in a Camaro, drives by, you know, flips flips us off. So Dick flips him back off. The guy turns around like, these kids aren't going to do that to me. Pulls over and starts getting in Dick's face. And as a 13-year-old, Dick punched him, knocked him out, and pisses on him. The other salesman's guy's like, he's 13 too. And he's like, he's freaking out. What the hell's going on? And Dick's like, ah, this kid, he deserved it. I I couldn't even think about that at 13. I don't know if I can think about it now, <laughs> but it's crazy, that's right? The thing is, it really does take uh, a certain type of person to get into combat sports in general, right? Uh, and it, it, or at least, especially used to with with wrestling, and there used to be tryouts all the time for things where well, pretty much everybody would fail because they didn't want anybody in there that wasn't exceptional and also didn't have the the grit and toughness yet with some level of humility because otherwise, like yeah. we ain't gonna be able to work with you. They just want to make sure that you could you would try and keep going yeah, and, and you keep were going serious. and keep like, going. Oh, you want to be a wrestler, but yeah. you're going to show up out of shape? Like, okay, no good. Exactly. This isn't a joke. There was no MMA back then, you know. No. So they were the toughest guys in the world, and that's just the way it was, and for a reason. Well, and, and guys like Bill Watts, if you if you get into a fight outside of, uh, outside of the oh, ring yes. and you lose... You're gone. You're, You're fired because he couldn't have his he couldn't have his wrestlers losing to a guy in a bar. Yep. That's my dad told me that story when he he worked for Bill Watts for years. Told me that story and actually was like, like yeah, he was like, if we fought, we we had to we had to win. So we were fighting for our lives. Cops would come, we'd fight the <laughs> cops because we're fighting for our jobs. Isn't that funny? Speaking of training, and you talked about Carl Gotch. You were tra- trained by Gotch and. Billy Robinson. Yes. Yeah. I, I managed to get a little bit of time with Gotch and I've spent years, like seven years under Billy Robinson. How did you get hooked up with them? Obviously uh, in Japan, correct? With, uh, well, no, actually, uh, with Robinson, I got hooked up in Japan because mm-hmm. I sought out the UWF Snake Pit gym mm-hmm. uh, run by Yuko Miyato. Right. And Makoto Oe was the Thai boxing trainer mm-hmm. there. UWF, Universal Fe- Wrestling Federation. Well, I think. Was it Universal? The first UWF, I forget what, I think it was, well, by the time it got to UWFI, that was Union Mm. of Wrestling Forces International, and then the there were Bill Watts's was Universal. Yeah, right? that was Universal Wrestling. And the, then, the one in Japan was different. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I don't know exactly what. The, it's probably something yeah. really Japanese. So you sought them out, and, and then uh, well, so I started training with uh, Miyato whenever I could, and just and, sh- and showing my techniques. Miyato-san would go, oh, you know. Teach us some stuff. Show us some stuff. You know, you're out here fighting and everything. And right. and then they're like, oh, yeah, no, uh, Billy's just gone for a bit. And he comes back in. And I just kept training under Billy. I would live in Japan. And then I would be there uh, traveling back and forth all the time. This is all through uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling, fighting in pride, all that. I would go and train with Billy as much wow. as possible. And I would train Thai boxing with Makoto Oe. And I have taken my students when we're in Japan and we're in Tokyo I take my students to the snake pit to train there and to freshen up and run pads on them and what have you. I've, I've done seminars at the snake pit and, and uh, them and AACC are two gyms that I'm really tightly attached to. But Billy was incredible. And with Gotch, I right. got introduced through Jake Shannon and it was set up for a, a magazine interview for, mm. I think it was uh, Gong Kaktogi. 
and they brought me to Carl and they thought, oh, this is going to be incredible. You know, these two pro wrestler, catch wrestler guys. So Carl, ever the skeptic and just uh, kind of a curmudgeon, but right. uh, he's just, he's just he's got a very low threshold for bullshit. Oh, and yeah. so Carl's sitting back and he, he asked me a few little questions and he's just really, what he was doing was just trying to get a read on me. And then at some point the, cause I'm, you know, I'm sure he's heard it all before. Right. right so of course the press guys show him, they pull out a little portable DVD player laptop and they show him my fight versus Noguera. Oh, so you had already fought in I'd already, yeah, I was pride. already fighting in pride. And, okay. and so which they, was, was my favorite organization. Yeah, they, I love my, me too. But they, they show him a fight. My first fight with Noguera that I win and gotcha is sitting back and he's just like, what are you doing that for? That was stupid. Or what? And he's just, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's egging he's, you on. Yeah. Man. He's criticizing. He, he's, it he's, testi- he's testing you. Yeah. And I'm sitting back and, and we get all done and I can see that the, the reporters are just sweating their asses off. They're like, Oh no, what the, I had no idea. They had no idea that this was going to be the case. And I'm just thinking, and what ran through my mind immediately was as soon as they pull that out, I go, Oh fuck. <laughs> gotcha is going to rip me apart. So, all right, but whatever. Gotcha leans back and kind of kind of looks down, not not really looking down his nose at me. It wasn't wasn't an arrogant thing, right? But he's it's imagine someone looking down their nose, but from the where their glasses are at or yeah. something like that. And Carl just goes, "That piss you off, you know what I have to say?" And I just looked at him and went, "No, I'm not. I don't. I don't care about getting mad about anything like that. That's right. pointless. In fact, I just want to hear what your opinion is so that I can get your perspective." And use it to to make to have a different perspective on this, a different set of eyes, a different approach, and to understand why you see things the way you see them. So I can take that in and then use it to make myself better. And he just kind of went, hmm. He didn't say anything. And then he just started showing me all kinds of stuff and working with me and asking me different things. And then I would talk to Carl on the phone about every once a week or so, and he would check in and he gave me like little warm-up and exercise drills to do and he was honestly, I, I met him way too late in life, and I wish I could have spent a lot more time with him. Yeah, he was, he was, that guy was insane. All the different stories with the Malinkos, mm-hmm. and uh, Dean hated him. Dean couldn't, <laughs> Dean hated him, but Jody loved yeah. him. Like he was, Jody was his star pupil, you know. But I know this, the story where they had this little, um, Russian, you know, training gym, the Malinko training gym down there in, in Tampa, Florida, and gotcha, got pissed off at uh, at jody and jody stood up to him well he picks jody up and throws him through like one of the walls <laughs> and wa- and jody comes up and comes back at him and and gotcha's like yeah that's my boy all right all right the malenko's if you've never seen any wrestling of them in japan check it out on youtube because those guys were so they were so good one was dean was was the great inter- more of the entertainer and um, both shooters, but Jody was the shooter. He was the yeah. He watching was, he was Jody in tag team matches in the second UWF and things like that, you know, yeah. really cool to watch. Yeah, them go out there. And and Dean was always somebody I loved watching in WCW. So when I when I was, I must have been seventeen. So nineteen eighty seven, we went to the Cauliflower Alley Club when it was here in L A. It was like the actual. Now it's in Vegas. And it's kind of a very politicized sure. public size and they got the fans and everything this was back here it was only the members and you know whatever that was there so i was there with my father and met billy robinson i'd met him before as a kid but he was such a nice guy i didn't know he was such a killer you know my dad had wrestled him many times at the Olympic auditorium back in los angeles 
So they were talking. My dad was like, yeah, you know, they got this new organization and we, you know, we want you to go over there and go train with them. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. I'm thinking it's wrestling. I, had, I didn't even train wrestling yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then later on, I see these tapes, these UWF. I'm like, holy shit. Like they're, I'm going to die over here. <laughs> and I, I almost went like literally Billy's like, oh, don't worry. We'll take care of him. We'll bring him over. We'll I'll bring him under my wing. But I, I would have died. I, I would have been a totally different Ken person. Shamrock says the first time he ever got introduced to the UWF, Funaki just stretched him six ways to Sunday. Oh yeah. And he, he just couldn't, he's like, what the hell? Man? What is this? Yeah. Yeah. Billy, what a, what a nice guy he was. You for you wrestled in wrestled in Pancrase too. You're the the king of Pancrase. Mm-hmm. You've kind of gone there. You've you've been you've you've been everywhere, man. Well, you did Pride, yeah, which is my uh, favorite by far. Fought in Pride, fought in uh, K1's MMA events. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, let's see, fought in Dream, fought in uh, Pancrase, king of Pancrase title. Yeah. Uh, IGF for Anoki, uh, mm. New Japan. Uh, wow. You just get around, man. Uh, the Don't thing forget Matamoros. Matamoros too, and. Uh, the whole thing is just trying to get in whatever ring is available to challenge yourself and be on that journey. You live that real life blood sport yeah. kind of uh, story. You know, I mean, that's the way you get the good things to tell your kids when you're a granddad. Absolutely. When I first met you, I met you backstage at a, uh, a WrestleMania or something like that. And yes. then we're talking and I think you heard all my, you know, my dad and we're, we're right. We're rapping and talking a bunch of stuff. And I was like, guys, I, I know Josh, like I see him as a kid, but he was such a nice guy and very, you you were in our element. You were in the wrestling and you weren't in there like a tough guy. I've seen so many people come in backstage trying to be tough and wear a tank top back there. And I'm like, what the, what the fuck is this guy? You know, you were just such a nice guy. And I was like, oh, what a, what a, what a cool guy. You were speaking some, you know, wrestling carny to me and stuff. And I was like, all right. Oh, I remember I, also your dad telling stories about Fujiwara scaring the living oh, yeah. shit out of him and thinking Fujiwara is going to enact some revenge on him from some bad behavior from other gaijin and just laughing my ass off. Yeah, yeah. And that was a story where, where all the other people on the tour, and there was, a you know, not to name names, a bunch of other people that were, they're just bored. They're on the tour for three to six weeks at a time sometimes. Yeah. They would, uh, they were, you know, rolling the windows down and trying to spit on the Japanese people as they were ro- driving by. And my dad's like, oh, I'm not doing that. No way, no way. <laughs> well, it got word, got back to the office, the Japanese office, and they were going to send the whole tour home. They're like, "That's it. That's that's mm-hmm. so disrespectful." You know, anybody who doesn't know Japan, that's that's my favorite country to go to, besides you know the United States, and sometimes better than the United States. But they are so um, respect. They're all about respect. When they saw this, they were like, "That that's appalling." Mm-hmm. So they're going to send the whole tour home. But instead of doing that, they put them one by one in the ring with Fujiwara. And Fujiwara stretched every last one of them. I mean, we're talking tough guys. I mean, tough, tough guys. Big, tough dudes. Yeah, yeah, stretching them all. So it was my dad's turn. And everybody's like, oh, tonight, Chavo, you're getting it tonight. It's your (laughs) turn tonight. And he was like, oh, my God. (laughs) My dad dad was an alternate of the 60 in the 68 uh, Olympics for Mexico. He could he could wrestle, but it's. Two total different ball games. Get in there with with Fujiwara, so he was like, "Oh no!" He's like, oh, "It's my turn." Well, Fujiwara got wind that knew that my dad didn't wasn't being a part of it, so they went back and forth and they worked the shoot to where my dad, you know, really held his own. And then they came back and Fujiwara bowed to my dad in front of the locker room and stuff. And everybody's like, oh my God, Chavo, what the heck? And that's how my dad got the reputation of being a shooter because Ah, Fujiwara Fujiwara put him over. over. (laughs) Fujiwara is so devilish. I, I, uh, I remember meeting him for the first time 
and being like, Kumicho, huge fan, man, you're you're so awesome. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And yeah. I'm just going, they didn't you know, care. I, I trained under uh, Billy Robinson and I, right. I've trained a little under Carl. I'm a fighter. And he's just like, stupid. <laughs> like, what are you doing doing that? And I go, well, I don't know. I guess I just haven't learned my lesson. And so I would just talk shit to him and he would just laugh. And he's just like, all right. right. He's a funny guy, yeah. right? And yeah, he's such yeah. a comedian. He, and uh, watching him, like I would set him up. I'd bring over like my guy, uh, Eric Hammer. And I trained him from from start to finish as a pro wrestler. He's my first pro wrestling student. Bring him over to IGF, and I got Fujiwara face locking the shit out of him. Yeah. Bone to bone, <laughs> bone gotta to bone, be bone, bone to bone. <laughs> and Hammer's just like, geez, you know, and just practically wanting to shit himself. It hurts so bad. And then I had students uh, fight over in Pancrase. Yeah. And so after the matches were done, I said, okay, well, I got it set up so you guys are going to live out here for another three weeks. Because I, I got gym set up. I got all these things I want wow. you to... And I, I found, I got wind of Fujiwara doing a little seminar. So I paid for it for them and I sent them off and I go, well, hey, let, let Kumicho know that I'm sending my boys over. And they got practically a, a little mini one-on-one seminar after the whole thing. You know, Kumicho, Fujiwara-san spent all this personal time with them because they were my boys. Yeah. And, uh, but the funny thing was getting the message the next day goes, uh, hey, yeah, thanks for uh, giving us a heads up. He was going to. Stretch the living shit out of us, you know. Nice, nice to know that. And I just laughed and I go, "Oh yeah, I might have slipped my mind." Yeah, they, you know what? It's funny. They 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 love it. They're almost sadistic in a way, but that's just like like their thing. Talking to Gene Labelle. Mm-hmm. Now, Gene Labelle was a, a good friend of our of our family growing up here in the Los Angeles area, and when my mentor in, in judo wrestling, but also in stunts mm-hmm. in in Hollywood. So he. Um, Oh yeah, when Gene locks something on, you know it. Yeah, when I was talking to him one time, and I was I was talking about a fight or something like that, and where I got behind the guy and rear naked choked the guy, just like it was in, a, in outside of a bar or whatever. And uh, Gene's like, well, and then what happened? And then and then what happened? So I told him, and I, you know, I grabbed him and choked him out, and he was like, you know, they got broken up, and he's like. Mm. That's like sex to me. <laughs> and I, started, I was like, oh my God. He's like, I, he's like, I, he's like, that's just, I love it. <laughs> such a, every time someone comes across Gene and if Gene has even a slight whiff that they have any association with me, I get a text or a phone call. Hey, I, I was told to ask if you could teach me the Kimura. The, ki- the Kimura. Like, okay, I see you met Gene. Not the Camaro. You're like the double wrist yeah, lock. Yeah, double wrist lock. And so Gene... <laughs> Ask had, him the, he asked me that one time when I was talking about you. I think we are going to go train at Paulson's place. Oh. And he was like, oh, you ask him about the Kimura. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's Uncle Gene. And Uncle Gene uh, actually choked out one of my fighters to get his patch. So my really? fighter, Victor Henry, goes, no, 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 go ahead, do it for real. I'm not, I'm not here to be no bitch. And so Gene put him in a sleeper and slept him. Did he make yeah. him? Did he make him pee himself? No, no, no. Definitely wasn't that to that level. But uh, yeah, little well, Victor's a, a maniac, man. I mean, that kid is—he's one of the highest ranked 135ers in the world. He's on an eight-fight winning streak, but he's a, he's a little little wild man. I've seen Gene. You see him when they he choke people out, and as the guys out, they'd pour water. Oh, <laughs> they'd put a water on <laughs> on his on his. His crotch area, and they'd wake up. The guy would wake up like, "Oh, okay, okay," and they put on, you know, "I'm sorry, man," but you. <laughs> and the guy would be kind of a, <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, Gene is such a practical joker. It's such a, I. It is always a warming moment to just know that Gene's in the room and to see him. It just always feels so wonderful to just just to see his face and and hear him and just. I love Gene. 
It's, Uncle Gene, that's why they call him Uncle Gene. Yeah. You know, everybody in the stunt world, oh, Uncle Gene, Uncle Gene. Yeah, he's... he's I, I, uh, Danny Innocent was the same way. I grew mm-hmm. Dan. And mm-hmm. uh, I, send yeah. him a, I send him a text every every year for his birthday. Mm-hmm. And he always writes back in all caps, thank you so much. I, I can't believe you remembered. I hope you're doing really well. Take care. I'm Dan, just like, of course I remember Guru. Danny's one of those guys that it, it, you've seen him a hundred times in different movies. Just mm-hmm. like, he's just one of those character actors a hundred times, but he's a, you know, a real master also. How did you get interested in pro wrestling? Uh, I Because sometimes, sometimes they don't go hand in hand. That's sometimes true. MMA fighters aren't fans of pro wrestling. Right, right. Just because they're like, oh, that's not fight. It's not real fighting, whatever. But the ones that get it, get it and well, they get this entertainment th- that disconnect i i mm-hmm. honestly think uh some of it is due to the attitude era to some degree sure some some things around there where things mm-hmm. really just got completely over the top right and uh you know really kind of push people off plus there there was a point at which you know kayfabe was being dropped in mm-hmm. and around that era and so i think a lot of people took real offense to it even those that weren't serious pro wrestling fans and they might have known God, that's or, good. I had an idea. I just had a big old sip of that but, Warbinger. Warbringer. Bor, what? Yeah, Warb- it brings Warbringer. the war to such a degree wow. you can't even pronounce it. Warbringer. Yeah, it'll get you stumped. That's up. awesome. <laughs> and and so I think yeah. like they even inherently felt pissed, yep. you know, in a way. And which is part of the reason why I try to defend, I mean, even as I'm sure completely exposing the business that everybody already knows is exposed. But, it's, we, we but I, tr- I try to hold kayfabe as tight as possible still. Not sure. because I'm trying to fool anyone like objectively, but I'm trying to get them as the viewer to be so enraptured in what's happening in front of them and so invested, they don't think about it that way. That I've said that so many different times. So I compare, when I'm doing seminars and stuff, I'll compare pro wrestling to like uh, illusions like magic, like you know Chris yes. Angel. And I say, look, they know Chris Angel that that it's an illusion that it's not real. They know that that pro wrestling that's entertainment. We're, we may be hitting hard out there in safe spots, but we're telling a story out there. But just like Chris Angel, you know it's not real. It's not real magic in a sense. It's an illusion. But as soon as he starts floating, you go, "Holy shit! What what's going on? Like how was how, how is he doing that? What what the heck?" But as soon as you see the string or the rope, you're like, oh, okay, change the channel. Yeah. It's the same with wrestling. I tell wrestlers, you never want to let them see the string. They they know this is not real. This is entertainment. But once you lose them and make them say, I know wrestling's not real, but those guys are really kicking the shit out of each other. That's when you got them. But then you give them that pro wrestling punch or you do something that's just so, so hokey. You lose them. Once they change told, the channel. Once you make sure that they are made aware that you're working like once you do stuff that is just way too over the top way too paint by numbers i mean you just you're then the only way that they're really going to watch it is from a a completely like uh i would say they're they're removed from the emotion more so and they're more looking at it in a naked sense and i just like that can't compete when somebody is watching and they're not concerned with anything else that's going around them right? other than the product that's right in front of them. It's like watching a really good movie and what if somebody in special effects is telling you that it's all fake the whole time? Or you see the boom. You see the boom up top and you're like, oh, they just lost me. Right. Like, gosh. Or I see, I do that with movies when I see 
a something that's not um, a period, not time period, mm-hmm. like like somebody's uh, belt buckle or like even a car in the background. There's supposed to be a 1960s movie, and I, I see in the very far background, I see an 80s car, and I'm like, oh man, yeah, I just saw that. Or I see their tie is one way, and then you flash back to another scene. I see their tie another way. It ruins I, the suspension I, I, of disbelief I lo- every time, every time. And I'll point that out. My wife would be like, like what do you? <laughs> Like, why do you have to? Why do you have to do that? I, say, I I can't help it anymore. Like I do it, and you're a cinephile, if, if from what I understand, it's right? It's true. It's true. And uh, you know, even some of the, the the worst. I watch when people go like, "What do you watch?" Like, well, one, I haven't had cable or satellite or anything like that since two thousand and eight, nine. Like wow. I have, I, so I got rid of it a long time ago. Yeah. And uh, I pretty much watch movies from around nineteen ninety to like nineteen sixty. Wow! Yeah, yeah. So you like masterpiece stuff instead of like a bunch of the Hollywood junk. Well, together, yeah, right? but I I love also watching all the Italian ripoffs from <clears throat> oh, the seventies sure. yeah. and the eighties of stuff like uh, like there was a the whole spaghetti show, westerns, man. all the spaghetti westerns. But then they would rip off Alien, they would rip off Mad Max, they would rip off Escape from New York and Star Wars and anything that, that was already big and popular. They would make their own rip off version of it, and I would track down every single one of these things and watch them as much as possible. Sometimes they they were actually really entertaining watches and really clever in what they were trying to do, especially knowing with the budget levels they were working with and how many films some of these directors were cranking out in a Uh. year and just go, it's unreal that they could light things this well, that they could get the shots that they did and do so on such shoestring budgets. But then there's the level of skill that some of these guys would have is Bonkers! Can you imagine if they would have had the big budget of for sure? Yeah, yeah. how much better it would have been? It's crazy. That's also a consideration. Like, man, maybe if you give them more money, you just get more of this, but just just even more ridiculous. Who knows? (laughs) We were just talking about that earlier, but we did that Dark Side of the Ring season two, and uh, the guy that I partnered up with, uh, Evan Husney. He was, I'm like, I asked him the same thing, how'd you get involved with like movies? And he said, well, I started doing documentaries and, and just started putting together these stupid movies on shoestring budgets. And he did one called Birdemic. 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 And he did it with this guy who, he was like this really crazy Asian guy that um, had a little money, but would drive around with this like van that had a bunch of birds on, like stuck to it, and he was trying to sell like this this birdemic birdemic movie. So Evan was such a such a movie buff that he saw this guy and was kind of like, All right, got to know him, and they decided to do this movie thing together. The guy was he said it was batshit crazy, <laughs> but they put this movie together. It's, it's it's absolutely horrible. But the guy, you know, put put the birds out there that were just like digitally enhanced and and, and like. He inserted the birds, but they were, it was so bad. He'd use like the same birds over and over again. It was so bad. And you have the people like literally like, like, like swatting air, almost like they're swatting like a swarm of bees. (laughs) They're doing an Ernest Miller cell, I call it swarm of the swarm of bee cell. And then they would insert these birds and it's, it's so bad that it's good. And actually it got some praise. It actually got some praise because it was so bad. It was just so bad. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, Bird-demic. I mean, seeing some of the, the Enzo Castellari knockoffs of things. So you've got uh, Escape from the Bronx, and then you would have uh, the New Barbarians that had... In fact, funny, so I did a movie with uh, Michael Jai White recently, mm-hmm. or last year. We did uh, something called Outlaw Johnny Black, and Jim Brown was on set. Jim Brown, ooh, and gosh. Jim Brown and... Uh, 
Fred Williamson were on set. Another one, wow. And so I walk up to Fred Williamson and everyone's like, you know, giving him a, a much deserved praise, you know, just to be right. able to see him. So I go up to Fred Williamson and I go, I bet you I'm going to be the only person to walk up to you today, maybe for a while in general, that's going to go, uh, you as in uh, the New Barbarians as this character named, uh, why can't I remember the character name now, uh, Nadir, I go, that was pretty rad with the exploding arrows and everything. And he's just like, he starts telling me the story about the special effects guy they call Bomba because he would, you say, oh, we need an explosion over here. He would always do three times whatever you needed, like blow your hair back kind of stuff every <laughs> single time. And I'm just but going, he did some some off the wall movies. Oh, he did. And, and some I, great movies I with some, some off the wall. Yeah. Some of these bonkers like he was things. like some zombie people. He's been a zombie yep. ones and dead guys. And I've oh, seen him. Man. Yeah. Some like, of the stuff from the early yeah. 80s and 70s. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Late 70s. So like the new barbarians or right. he did i think he did one with uh this guy uh robert ginty who was also in uh warriors of the wasteland with donald pleasance of all people mm. and persis Kambada. oh wow uh, so anyways he did this movie called white fire about some rare diamond being found and and there's a chainsaw <laughs> fight in this movie and all kinds of crazy ass shit <laughs> I, uh, I italian flick oh yeah well me and uh and this cat named uh hanato laranja we are huge cinemaphiles. And he does this whole, he's a 27-time world champion in jiu-jitsu. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he, he, he goes and he does his shtick. But uh, when it comes to talking film, all he, all he knows his stuff real deep. And so we can go on and on and on about Persis Kambata or, or uh, Robert Ginty. And actors like this where people are going, the who the hell are you talking about? My youngest son is like that. He's 17 and he's, you know, all into, I got two sons. One's 21. He's, he's, they're both me in different ways. My oldest one's the, um, he's the jock douchebag, uh, frat, frat boy. Mm -hmm. And my youngest son is the, the eclectic drama nerd. Uh, the guy that just loves, he's super smart, super great kid. Uh, but I, you know, I call him, you know, a cinephile, cinemaphile, but he, he hates that. Cause it's like, it's too much like pedophile. <laughs> he, he loves all that stuff. And all they do him and his buddy, they just watch films all day long. And he'll tell me everything about an actor and what's he's done and this and that. And, you know, a couple of different actors. I don't, I, I, I'm in the business. I don't even know that much. Mm -hmm. So I'll talk to him. Hey, I met this actor the other day and some award show and he's like what oh my god he did this one and just did this and i'm like oh okay i, I didn't know <laughs> that's yeah. pretty cool yeah he knows the stuff man you um getting into into wrestling like into being a fan the mma fighters or boxers or whatever who get it they get the showmanship of it and in sports once you start making a dollar for a sport, it's mm -hmm. it's not a sport anymore. It's it's entertainment. That's what I call well, it. Well, for sure. And it's, I tell everybody that when you are an MMA fighter, you're an entertainer as well as an athlete. And people need to be able to pick you out from the crowd. Right. You got guys like, uh, I'll, I'll say Conor McGregor. I'm a fan of his, everything. Is he the best fighter around? Well, debatable, probably not. But he's a damn good showman. He's mm -hmm. made the most money out of it because... He sells fights, you know. He's he, he's he's entertainment. He gets the entertainment part of it, you know. When he lost to um, oh Khabib, Khabib, yeah, Khabib. I was remember his last name is not easy. Nerma, Nerma yeah, not easy, not easy. Oh my god, like like that. He just died. We've seen that fight a few different times. He just besides a couple of punches from McGregor, he dominated, mm -hmm. dominated him. But McGregor sold the shit that fight. And to I mean to the MMA fan, Khabib was already. 
a star, but to the layman person who wasn't really white, he was he, he, not a, a lot of people knew about him. They know about him now. Well, it's like Connor makes the comment yeah. about basically making a star out of someone just by fighting him. I'll make you famous. Right, and right. He's right. He will. Yeah, and, and you get that. See, and you guys, you get that pro well, wrestling. It's the same in pro wrestling, right? You know, having a vet give you right. the rub and put you over and help you out. I mean, it, it, it goes a long way. Huge, huge. You get Ric Flair or a, a Triple H or now even like a now John Cena or those guys to, to job for you in a sense, to lose to you or even to make you look super good at a WrestleMania and have a huge program with you. It puts you on the map. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that a lot of MMA guys and talking to certain guys, you know, the, they may talk bad about wrestling until you explain it to them and they're like, oh, well, well, yeah, I mean, I get that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, yeah, I get that. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I get And they go, that's what wrestling is. That's what we're doing. Some people are better at wrestling mm-hmm. than other people. Some teachers are better at teaching than other teachers. Some lawyers are better than lawyers. So you have people that are something just doing the moves, but you guys, guys, and I'll say people like Eddie and like Chris Benoit, and you go look at their stuff from you know 92 94 98 in japan it still holds true today because it's it's still in a pro wrestling style but it's like real it brings you in it makes you believe what you're watching really matters and really counts there it is i as i got more and more into wrestling as somebody that competed in it and uh was working in the business stuff like that i mean you start realizing inherently why these things stand out. Why people still talk about Dusty and the Warriors and even Nikita Koloff and, right. and different different wrestlers of, of bygone eras and why these people are still the thing that holds highest for folks. Like this mm-hmm. is the this is what I'm shooting for. But then you go and you look and you go, I think you you've missed why they were so amazing. Like if you want to do Misawa's moves, that don't make you Misawa. No, it, it doesn't. You know, it, it's and and I don't think you necessarily should do his moves per se. Not not to protect them necessarily, right. but it's just you need to find what is uniquely you I and make so. that what is the centerpiece of whatever it is you do as a wrestler. So doing someone else's move because you just want to do moves, it might not be the thing that really suits you. And uh, you, you just and have that's to- a problem with wrestling. People do moves because they'd like, oh my God, Rey Mysterio does this, so I'm going to do this mm-hmm. move. I would say, I use Randy Orton a lot. Randy Orton does, he does like five moves mm-hmm. and he does them really, really, really good and he does them at the right time. It's, it means everything. He's not doing a backflip off the top rope. He's not doing hurricanas. He doesn't need to do that stuff. He'll do a punch or a stomp or a kick at the right time. It, it's like magic. It's it's beautiful. He gets it. And I would say to people, it's not what you do. It's how you do it. Those moves help tell the story, but they're not the story. Well, think about it. What they're doing is is people are taking, let's say, uh, Mysterio 619. Sure. So they go, oh, well, this is over. So what I'm going to do is steal something that's already over to put my, to, so to, to get the, to try and take some of that rub for myself instead of being who they really are being making something of their own right be the recognizable or the or get that over because they're too afraid of not not actually getting over so they're just living off the vapors of already more successful people that's 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 called a young wrestler so that happened to me i was in wcw and everybody was doing chops and this and that so hey it's pro wrestling we chop okay Mm -hmm. whatever a chop although i've been in many 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 
street fights and never once have I chopped a guy. <laughs> but it's just weird, right? I think or, you, I think you got something to add to the repertoire. Or, or shot him. I never shot a guy to a bar and had him come back <laughs> off to me. Anyways, so I was chopping and I was getting a reaction. You know, I was getting uh, you know, wow, they're making they're making sounds. So I come to the back and Arn Anderson goes to me and goes, Kid, come here. Why are you chopping? And I was like, um, I, I'm, I was just chopping. I don't know if I felt like that, that's where it needed. And he goes, are you getting a reaction? I said, yeah. He goes, what are they saying? I go, they're saying, woo. And he goes, so who's getting this pop out there? I go, Ric Flair. And he goes, well, then you're doing the work. Why are you giving Ric Flair the pop? And I go, <laughs> you're, God, you're so right. And if any young wrestler listen, just because you do the move, you want them to think of you. You don't want them to think of... I've wrestled for a long, long time. I put somebody in a pedigree, they're going to think Triple H. Mm -hmm. They don't think Chavo Guerrero, right? I do a frog splash, so they do think Eddie. There's a reason. There's a different story. I do a captured suplex, so they do think Akira Maeda. There you go. You know, that's on there's, purpose. That's I want on them purpose. to think about Maeda-san. I want, them, I want Maeda and, and wrestling fans to know the homage to him. By, right. by what I'm doing, how I have but, seven but suplexes. You, but yeah. you get it. You get it. That's why you're doing it. I do. I never did a three amigos before when Eddie passed. After, now that he passed, I do them every time. And when they say Eddie, and every time they do it, I sit and point to the sky because that's why I'm doing them. I'm not doing them for me. I'm doing them for him. I'm yeah, giving him Hideki the pop. Suzuki is probably the person who is trained the most. Well, besides Yuko Miyato. Miyuko Miyato has spent the most time training under Eddie, uh, under Billy Robinson. Mm. And Jake Shannon spent a ton of time training, training under Billy. And I spent seven years, but both Miyato-san and, uh, and, and Hideki Suzuki trained under Billy more tightly and more closely than I did. And so Hideki uses Billy's entrance music, mm. and he, his finish is a double-arm suplex. Double-arm, yeah. As yeah, yeah. taught to him right. by R Billy, Robinson. Billy Robinson. So this is literally... Billy Robinson's uh, lineage passed down directly into and every time he wow. hits that move every time he hits the one arm backbreaker this is an honor to his coach this is putting Billy's spirit in the ring again and and yet everything Hideki does you don't say oh I'm watching another Billy Robinson you go I can see that I'm watching Billy Robinson's student students nice I love talking to you man just cuz we although we're talking about fighting we're talking about so many different things and people that are listening, it's not just do we like to smash people and MMA, sure. sure, but we're we're not just a bunch of dumb oafs. Well, and and we're we talking actually about like the, talking about it. it's the great through line with with a lot yeah. of this is is not only is it the heroic ideal, right, and the idea of of going and of overcoming that's that's what wrestling and combat sports it's watching right. somebody go out there and put out the heroic ideal. You know that they had to overcome, that they had to have courage, they had to have capability, they had to train, that there was work done before it even got to this moment. And that this moment, everything hinges upon it. And to watch the intensity of that moment, to see somebody fighting with everything they got against somebody else that's unwilling to ever relent, no matter yeah. how hard it gets for them. And to see an, even after uh, honorable conflict that the other can still raise up the opponent and in through through a, a matter of respect but also when it comes to things like lineages to your your trainers and those right. that have have molded and built you to carrying that torch down right. to having that torch stay lit and the honor in doing such a thing which to me these are these are universal concepts that you can you can see throughout time and history through whatever uh, text you want to read from the religious to to the you know the stories of 
the of the Greeks like like Homer's or or like anything mm-hmm. that Homer wrote or or anybody like that to uh, more modern stories. So the, these are universal human concepts. Speaking of that stuff, we'll go to the next topic. You're a philosophy fan, mm-hmm. and how does that shape your life? Well, everybody has an interest in why am I here? What is here? And what philosophy. is the purpose of being right? There? Yeah. What so is purpose? philosophy's basic fundamental questions are about the unanswered questions, questions that can't be answered in a right. sense. The the big questions, and sure. you know, and then it breaks down into things like phenomenology and epistemology and other ways of trying to divine the world in a manner that can make sense to you, and that you can also then make sense to other people with it. And so, being naturally drawn to to being introspective and thinking about these things and trying to, to always find a better version of myself and a better version of understanding. And that, that was a big key element of, of why I've been able to do what I do as a fighter and as a wrestler because mm-hmm. of not just going out there and doing moves and or just training under someone, but trying to understand the why and, and the, the how from whoever I'm working with and, and whatever I'm learning and taking that deepest level of root knowledge in so that then I can do anything with it by understanding the fundamental reason of, of the why. And then Very I can also Pete Peterson esque. <laughs> true. And uh, I also think about how I can make it mine because again, I'm, I'm not trying to, I can't do everything the way a Kira Maeda does because he's a Kira Maeda. I'm just me, mm-hmm. but I can do things the way I can do them. And perhaps some of the way I do them, he's not able to do them because he's not me. And so, you know, everybody is built a little differently. They, they have different levels of strength and speed and flexibility and just different temperaments. And so you always need to make whatever it is you're doing yours so that it works the best for how you are. I've been same way. I always say that you're have to be the the best you. You're you, you are made by whatever you believe in, whether Mm -hmm. you believe in God or, or, the universe, whatever you were made you for a reason. You can't do things other people can do, but there's things you do that nobody else can do. Mm-hmm. You're you for a reason. Embrace that and be that you. Yeah. A bunch of people are going to go out there and do fireman's carries. Right. But when, how, what did you do before it? What'd you set it up? I mean, everybody's going to have their own variations all throughout on just one move and how they get into it and how they use it and when they use it, why they use it, who they use it against. I mean, there's so many variables there and you know your true authenticity about who you are from all the things that have made up you to this point being what you were born into uh your own genetic breakdown your the way you think the people you've come across the events that have happened in your life all these things you know are all playing into who your authentic self is and then what 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 can be made out of that and so living up to your true authentic potential or as Heidegger we call Dasein being Dasein mm-hmm. and doing it uh, from your own your ownness your your individual self and not mm-hmm. from the agitation of the they from everyone else and but being able to separate yourself from that not as if you're not an island and it's not as if you're in a vacuum where the external doesn't influence or, or impact you in some way Everything but it, it's important to try and get to a place where you can understand even what it is it's trying to impart on you how you're responding to it what's best to take from it for you uh, what of it even really truly matters in the long run 
and how much of it is has anything to do with you or has everything to just do with it you figure that out you you figured them, so, you figured a lot out uh and, and i just really thought that things like philosophy helped me a ton with critical thinking and being able to approach many different problems from many different ways of viewing it uh mm-hmm. steel manning uh arguments against your positions or uh tape putting yourself in the shoes of the thing that you hate to try to understand what it is and why it is either worth hating or perhaps that you've got the wrong understanding. Uh, and, and maybe it's, it'll never be something that you think is good, but you understand why it exists. And if you can understand why it exists, it's like, so going back to the fireman's carry, I don't hit fireman's carries. I'm just not good at it. I've never been good at it. I don't think that my frame, my build, my whatever, it's just, it's never been a move that I've ever really been successful with at all. But I know why it works, how it works, sure. the different variants, all that I can, I know the ins and outs of a fireman's carry and I can teach someone how to throw a fireman's carry a myriad of different ways. And I can teach them to throw it in a way that is a hundred percent effective. But that's because even though I, it was never going to be my move, I had to understand it because also people are going to do it to me. Get to know to defend it. Yeah, exactly. So I think that a lot of things that we do in life are built on our temperaments mm. because you can say, well, this happened, this happened in your life and this has happened in your life. And for sure, those things are legitimate reasons to consider. But also I would say there's a lot of things that happen in your life that you don't realize that you somehow facilitated that either in how you reacted to it, all the things that you were doing and that led you to that, that street corner that night. I mean, there's, there, there's a, a long line of throughways that you got to this place and you're not even probably all that aware that these were all creations of your own action, action derived from your own state of being your own being in the world. Decisions uh, you've made, yes. yet the paths way, you've and, taken. And the ways yeah. that you just naturally think. And, and the so, way you perceive things and how you've actually absorbed that and actually made those choices yeah correct and so being able to to realize how much of an effect that you could have had even on how you've ended up anywhere it's it's important i think and at the end of the day i think there's a really simple quote i think it was Maya Angelou who said you know we do the best we can and then when we know better we do better and so you can't fully be faulted for not knowing better on a lot of things and while human beings are best at lying to themselves than they are to lying to anybody else if you can be even aware that you're lying to yourself, then then you're, you're doing so much better. Like We're all aware of it. We just don't want to listen to that's, it. That's true. We all know when we're doing right, we're doing wrong, when we're lying to ourselves, whatever. We all know, but a lot of times we just don't, you just don't listen to yourself. It's weird. You think that, you know, so many times you're your best friend, but sometimes you are your worst yeah, enemy. Sometimes to where you are really your you worst You just enemy. like, you come, I look back sometimes and when finally, you know, I'll get the Latin temper and the Latin blood out of me and I'll take a step back and I look like, whoa, why did I do that? That's just stupid. That just, I don't, I don't get it. And sometimes you'll repeat that action mm-hmm. over. It's weird. Well, I often tell people that the, one of the strongest things you can do, one of the being, one of the, the highest levels of strength is to, to make the decision against what is easiest in, in a given situation to make a decision where it's the right thing to do as, as your ethics and morals are, are, are considered, even though it means you get less out of it, or maybe even you pay for it in some way, either like right. you physically have to, maybe it costs you some money to do it that way, or it costs you time, or you're not winning out of this in that sense, in some sense like that. 
but you're, the way you're winning is that you are sticking to your, your ideals and you are being the person that you purport yourself to be and the person that you want to be. And the other thing that's in- incredibly strong is to, in a given situation, when you've screwed up, to say you've screwed up and to, to own up to it and or to Accountability, even apologize to it. someone yeah. without wanting anything in return. You know, I have, I've had, I was having a conversation with someone not that long ago and they go, well, you know, if, if, if situations don't equate toward you getting something out of it, I'm, I'm worried, you know, people often like they just, I go, look, I I never, I don't want anything from you other than for you to be exactly who you are and to respect me. And that's it. I don't need you to do anything else for me. We can, we can do things together. I'm sure there's plenty of mutually beneficial things, but your involvement in my life isn't about what I get out of it at all. Mm-hmm. It, it's only because I see you as a person that I respect and like, and that's it. That's the only reason that I want you involved in things I do and to have your friendship. And that is about acquiring nothing. I like that. So I'm very big on saying I'm sorry and apologizing and take ownership of me being wrong. I don't always recognize it, but when I do recognize it, I'm like, okay, hold on a second. That was totally wrong of me. And that's the hardest thing for people to do is admit that they're wrong and they, they probably wasn't the best thing for them to do or that they didn't reacted wrong or whatever. It's so hard for people to own up to that. Yeah, people often, I think, get the idea that, okay, done something wrong I've, I've been in the wrong position i've had the wrong the wrong response uh or, or operated on the wrong information and now I just, i'm a fool mm-hmm. it's like okay yeah well admitting that you're wrong means that okay someone gets to tell you that you're wrong and that you fucked up and whatever the case may be but people will not look worse upon you for being wrong and admitting it than for the being wrong part itself by the taking the accountability for it I I guess I should clarify people with any real sense of ethics Mm -hmm. will and and have any consideration of what character is. will look at that person and go somebody that's willing to admit to their faults and take responsibility for it is someone that I am more interested to interact with and is more deserving of my respect, even if they did something that I really loathe than it is to have somebody that's always got an excuse or a reason or what have you. They can always divert what falls on their shoulders that's strength to me to somebody admit that they're wrong is so as a strong person that's strength you have to have real confidence absolutely some people think that that's it's not strength like it's weakness but it's not it's to me it's so you're strong you admit you're wrong you're wrong you're accepting the consequences and that's that's hard to do for people and it's tough and there's people that won't even necessarily uh they will. They might look at that as an opportunity to then uh, add on or take take a take another swing at you. But if that's the case, you don't need those people oh, in your life course. anyway. So, so I was so, in. I no was at Gold's gym. It's a win-win. And uh, and I get out of the shower and I go to my locker to go get my stuff. And people are often just leaving bags. Uh, not even not even bags so much, but they will leave clothes and towels all over the place and sure. just on benches and there's been plenty of times where I didn't mess with it what have you did nothing and then I leave and then nobody ever it's just like okay it's just more people just being slobs and so I go and I get my bag out and there's a band there's just 
clothes and whatever as per usual i just look i'm like okay typical and there's no one around and there hasn't been it's been at least a minute or two so i brush it off with my bag and i put my bag down and at some point this guy comes around the corner and he goes well you just you just throw my clothes on the ground is that it and i go i didn't know these were your clothes i mean i put them up there and you threw my clothes on the ground and you know what what yeah, that's, you, you just rude. You just throw people. I go, look, man, I had no idea. People leave clothes all over the place all the time. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. And he, and he, now he just starts piling it on. Oh, you know, blah, 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 blah. You just rude. They just throw people's clothes on. What if I went over there and I threw your stuff down? And I go, well, you're more than welcome to try. <laughs> and he, and he's, he kind of looks at me and he says something else, smarty. And I just looked at him and I went, look. I didn't know they were closed and I apologize. If you want to keep this going, if you want to keep ramping up, then we can do that. But you're not going to like the way it ends. And he looks at me and he just started biting his tongue, holding his breath, just pissed, grabbed his little stuff. And he didn't have shit else to say because it's just like, look, man, I didn't mean If someone to knock says they're down. sorry, someone cuts you off in the freeway. We, uh, we everybody in the world has done it on accident. And all of a sudden, if I cut somebody off, the first thing I'm doing is waving back, dude. I'm sorry, my bad. Flip me off, whatever. I take responsibility for it. If you start swerving, okay, now we have a different problem. But it's like if someone cuts me off and they, hey, sorry, it's all right, no big deal. You said you're sorry. You recognize yeah. your faults. All right, it's all good. A hundred percent. And so. You know, I'm not person. I'm not a person to get real, real fired up about stuff in general. I mean, there are some things I'll get fired up about, but not, not me, legitimately. Me, me angry. either. <laughs> not legitimately. Me either. Angry. I'm usually pretty, pretty easygoing, and I'm. I, I, I use uh, conversation to to get to the bottom of most things. That's and so that, that's uh, big. But I cannot stand weak people that will see an opportunity or, or perceive you being vulnerable by admitting that there was a mistake or being the kind of person that doesn't want to match any sort of aggression and just and go oh you know what uh i you know i didn't mean to upset you and i and then watch them try to ramp it up and like get in like as many knives as they can i lose i start getting pissed i was cool to you i realized there was a problem but i i want to make things right and right by you and you want to take that opportunity to be a dick to me right oh now now i just want to i just want to break your fingers and just just go you this is what you've earned being unreasonable one of my favorite sayings is don't confuse niceness for weakness oh for sure one of the biggest disrespects to me is not when somebody challenges me one of the biggest disrespects is if i'm being nice and okay dude i'll walk away once when i'm done walking away okay now you've pushed me to that point so now we're gonna get this on and all now they're backing off and now there's that's one of the biggest disrespects to me i'm like you push me to the point to where now i'm ready to go and now, and now you won't go yeah. that's worse than what you did before exactly exactly i know exactly what you mean <laughs> i okay so this guy i didn't realize he was playing a prank <laughs> <laughs> so it was after Bloodsport 2 and we're at the, the after party in the bar and I'm hanging out Ooh. and I'm talking to my friends, uh, my friend's wife. And this guy rolls up and he goes, I heard you're pretty tough. And I go, well, you know, uh, depends if only on Sundays or I don't know. I yeah, said something, something just, to diffuse the situation. Yeah, and, and, and he goes, you know, I don't I don't think you're that tough. And I go, well, you know, you're not the first person to say it. And and he's kind of he's kind of poking at me and. And I'm just like being affable and my friend's wife is laughing. So we all think he's just kind of being a joker. 
And uh, he goes, no, 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 I, you think you're pretty, I think, I bet I could take you. Mm. I go, well, people have tried. And he's just like, no, you know, I, no, I think I could, you know, we could, we could head outside and whatever. And I looked at him. I looked over at my friend's wife and I looked back at him and I started laughing. And I just went, well, okay. If, and I just start taking my jacket off yeah, and everything. Okay. And I just looked at him like, well, well, all right, then that's what's going to happen. And he just goes, no, 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 no. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Please, 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 please. I just, you I made a bet with my point. friend and I would just, I looked at him. I go, well, if someone seriously says they're going to, they're going to take me out or what have you. And you know, whatever you can, anybody can have their opinion that's listening in on this. And uh, I don't expect you necessarily to understand the, this kind of the aspect of honor culture that I, that I abide by. And it's I just fight, thought, fighter culture. Yeah. Totally, and I just yeah. like, Oh, okay. If that's, if you want to come over here and disrespect me and not take my ability to be affable about this and in front of my friends, it's like, well, then you're going to get what you, what you're asking for. I'll give it to you. And I didn't get mean. I didn't raise my voice. I never said anything. I just gave him a look and I just, was, and it was in my head. I was going through things like, I hope this guy doesn't really push us. I don't want to fight anybody. I'm not looking to do any of this. I don't want any. And, and uh, you know, who cares about these, these you know, drunk idiots? And then it got to the, there was just like, he crossed that one line and I, there was a change in my head. It's like, well, you went and done it. All right, that's it. It's the and, eyes. and I looked eyes at him and he everything. knew it was it, that I had made my mind up and he's like that. Okay. No, no, I, I please. That's eyes <laughs> tell everything I can tell. So, but by somebody's eyes, just by looking at them, if they want to fight or not, that's exactly it's why those, when you're working a match, if your your eyes give it all away, oh yeah. make sure the intention is real. Antonio Noki talked to me nothing about other than it wasn't about pro wrestling technique. It was always about what are you portraying to the audience and to your opponent. If you aren't in there like you really mean it, everyone's gonna know. If that it you don't count. believe it, they don't believe yeah. it. And the same thing in the bar. Like if I'm in a bar or in a situation like that, and somebody comes up to, me, I can tell right by their eyes if they want if they really want some. And if they look down, they look away. I got this guy. Yeah. And most people don't really want to go they, fight. They, really they want to do whatever yeah. they can do to to get that that raise up and status in their. Uh, they their just want to see if you will fight. Yeah. And yeah. then, uh, you know, if it gets to the point of it, then pe- most people are like, no, I- I'm not really interested in, in getting getting hung out right. with this whole thing. I don't want to see where this goes. And it's like, well, yeah, nobody, none of us did really. So right. could you just yeah. save us the just effort the, and, exactly. just, and just be cool? And if you, if you really want to fight someone, then approach it, even approach that the right way and you'll get what you want and, and, and everybody can walk away, hopefully, feeling like, all right, that was a respectable scrap. If we, if you really want to fight somebody, you're punching them. And the same thing with me. If like, if I really want to fight somebody, it's we're, we're fighting. If you really wanted to fight me, we would have been fighting already, you know? So, and that's part one of the Josh Barnett podcast. I had to split it up into two parts because we ended up talking for more than three hours. It was just such an easy conversation. The bourbon was flowing. We even broke open a few Los Guerreros Mexican lagers. So join us next week for part two of the Josh Barnett podcast, where we pop the cork on his delicious top shelf Warbringer bourbon and learn a lot more on what makes Josh Barnett tick. So we'll see you next week and viva la raza. Ooh, chavo. Go the X
Beat down.